Today on The Future of Fandom, we'll tiptoe into crypto and its passionate worldwide following. My name's Adam Connor, I'm your host, and our specific focus on this episode is Bitcoin and how one fintech founder is building community around its global appeal. In particular, you'll hear from Ledin co-founder and chief strategy officer, Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. Mauricio grew up in Venezuela where he learned about Bitcoin and truly understands its global applications. Heads up if you're in North America where media-forward Ethereum-based NFTs and simply hodling coins forever rules the day, Mauricio has much broader perspective for how it can be used and how its fans come together across the world. Today we explore how crypto communities coalesce and how to build a centralized brand presence within it despite Bitcoin's decentralized nature. I was glad to learn from him, if only for just a bit, and I think you'll enjoy his two cents too. So with that, let's bank some insight as we predict the future with Ledin and Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. Mauricio, it's great to talk with you. I hope you could take me to school today, but first, how are you? I'm doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Word to the listener here, this is an expert in the crypto world that we're speaking with. And I'm privileged to be chatting with Mauricio because every time that I have come into close contact with the crypto world, I'm not a, a robust investor myself. I think I probably should, or at least will be once I get finished with this conversation. But I am paying a lot of attention to holders or hodlers, as you might call them, and their passion for this type of investment and what it unlocks for the world. So we're going to get into that today. And Mauricio, the first one, uh, that I want to ask. The first real question here is, take me through what Bitcoin is doing for the world today, maybe how that's evolved over time, or at least how you see it. And then we'll get in a little bit to what Let In is all about. Definitely. And you are way too kind with your introduction. But, uh, you know, I'll do my best uh, to answer or to kind of, you know, share some of my learnings, spending so much time in the space. I think Bitcoin's doing a lot of things, but I guess to, to put it succinctly or to, you know, Bitcoin means different things for different people in different parts of the world. For, for people in investor markets where money works and you have ACH and Zelle and Venmo and TAP and Visa and no shortage of access to credit, Bitcoin to many is seen as, you know, one more asset that you can throw into the pool of already great assets to invest in. Right. This is the traditional understanding that I think of because every time I look at it, it's, you know, almost trading these things like commodities, whereas I know it has a much broader purpose. And so, yeah, I'm hoping you take me to school because I know there's got to be more to it than that. Yeah. Underneath that veneer of uh, just one more asset is an absolute financial revolution under the hood. But to see that, you need to go to a place like El Salvador and places like Venezuela where I'm from and where I originally got into Bitcoin many years back. And the reason that it's so powerful in those markets is because it represents an absolute shift in the tool set that you had available to you. So maybe I'll put it to you this way. For anyone outside of the United States and Europe, it is virtually impossible to have a US dollar bank account or to have your assets in sort of any kind of form that is not subject to the whims of your government. People in Latin America have experienced 
bank collapses almost every 10 years, a, a banking system collapses in Latin America. Almost every 10 years, a government collapses in Latin America and an entire currency collapses. And that basically means that they just get hyperinflated into oblivion and they change the name of it. And many times in, in Latin America, you go through these bouts of authoritarianism where assets can get expropriated from people. And you basically see the value of what you thought was going to be a great asset like real estate kind of dwindle and, and have very you know, basically no market to sell into. And so what a lot of people in, in a lot of places of the world that don't have the property assurances that investor markets do, what Bitcoin means to them is in many ways a life rack or, or, or you know, like, a, yeah, basically a, a life vest or a life boat, if you want to call it, where until Bitcoin, it was very difficult to purchase assets that maintained their value over time. And most people think of assets that can maintain their value over time as property and houses, perhaps gold, and maybe cars in some markets. But if you think about that, all those things have very high price tags. In, in an inflationary market, like if you're running at 20, 30% inflation and you're trying to save, say, $100,000 to put up a down payment or say even $50,000 to put up a down payment and you're trying to save it in $500 increments, if you're up against 20% inflation, you're never going to get to 50K because inflation is just going to eat away your savings even as you're trying to basically park them and to save up that critical mass to put down that down payment so you can buy your asset. Once you have the condo, it's fine because the condo can sustain its value over time. But the cash doesn't. And what happens now is that Miguel in Venezuela can essentially get 10% out of his paycheck every month and buy Bitcoin with it. And by doing so, that little bit of Bitcoin will be hedged against inflation and will be able to essentially grow over time or not lose its purchasing power rather than grow. And essentially, that enables Miguel to save faster and more effectively and not only does it help him save, but now he can transfer those funds internationally without basically having to go through a, a local bank. And that is revolutionary. That is as revolutionary as when you first sent that first BlackBerry Messenger message or that first WhatsApp message where you realized that you could go from one end of the world to the other and exchange texts with your friends for free where before you had to pay $1.50 to your carrier to send the same text. And so it's almost just as liberating. So this is not just an asset as we see it in the U.S. to, sure, maybe hedge against even inflation here. It's an alternative way to store your money. It is a finite asset, which some people may say is not currently true about the U.S. dollar, but abroad, in places where things are a lot more volatile with regard to any type of money reserve except for something hard like property, this is, if I'm getting this correctly, another avenue to financial freedom. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say, yep. So this is then a much bigger thing than what I see in the U.S. with a very media-forward approach to the exciting world of crypto where it seems like every 18-year-old with a phone and a laptop is trading all these different types of, of coins. And I know I'm dumping them all into the broad crypto sphere and that Bitcoin is, can we say, the gold standard here, as, as weird as that sounds, with regard to this landscape. But regardless, there is, and I'll start domestically, a huge passionate 
followership and fan base of all things crypto. What I have seen the most recently is that it has proliferated inside of, well, actually, well, Ethereum. So a currency that is not Bitcoin. But I'm curious from your perspective, since Ledin is rooted in Bitcoin, what you see and what the typical profile is of somebody who's a big fan of Bitcoin. And by the way, if me asking for that is foolish because, you know, there's no characteristic to lump into a group like that, please tell me so. But I'm curious to try and get into the head of somebody who's a big fan of Bitcoin. What might they look like? What interests might they have? Does it get that specific? So I think it's Bitcoiners are as broad of a spectrum as probably any group of humans have ever been. I don't think there's a broader spectrum of people than Bitcoin. And I actually think that some of it holds true also for Ethereum, perhaps. But, you know, I, I'm more familiar, I guess, with the Bitcoin community, so I can I can speak to that. And there is no real box or, you know, that you could put Bitcoiners into. But I think the underlying tone or the underlying sort of thinking that Bitcoiners have, or many of the coiners have, I shouldn't say all, is that Bitcoin is this, it's basically their way of expressing financial independence. It's, it's their way of saying, I am able to choose my own path and I can self-verify, you know, this is a system that I feel that I can trust and understand better than my current financial system. Because, you know, I think the reason people become so fascinated with Bitcoin is very much related to when they understand how the current monetary system works. I think once you understand how that system works and you get a, a high level understanding of how Bitcoin works, that's when basically your blinders go on. And that's when you, it starts becoming very difficult to, to see beyond that. And, you know, again, there's, there's a broad spectrum of Bitcoiners, but most of them, uh, you know, or not most of them, but a lot of them uh, love this idea of the fact that it's a finite supply, it's a programmatic money that they can understand way better than their current financial system. And because of that, they can feel that, you know, they are um, much more in control or at least have much more of a say uh, or are much more aware of the changes in the system versus the, the current system. So it's hard to put them in a bucket. But, you know, and I would say that Bitcoiners, you know, to your point about a lot of this sort of new communities and new development, you know, happening in this sort of Cambrian explosion around Ethereum, that is very much the case, but I think both platforms and both groups celebrate different things. You know, Bitcoin is a protocol that's been around for many years, and it's basically, in some ways, kind of ossified relative to some others because it doesn't really change that much. But that's exactly what people want out of Bitcoin, is that consistency, is that stability. You know, uh, you know Ethereum right now is sort of very forward-thinking in some of the things that it does. So for example, it's changing its consensus mechanism you know, that's not a small feat. It's kind of like changing a jet engine mid-flight. And so it's exciting, but it also comes with some risk. And so there, I just think that both of them are catering to different fandoms, if you would. Okay, that's helpful to know. And this is because when I have this like thought in my head, it's a much more targeted type. And this is because, again, it's outside of Bitcoin, but it's really what I know this NFT landscape, people are buying digital art and sure it might represent real things eventually, but that because Bitcoin's been here for so long, it was really first to the world 
that its profile is similar to the profile of humanity, which I get and I appreciate. So let me ask about this. How then do, and maybe we can take a little history lesson here with when Bitcoin was the first and only player in the game, how communities of fans or of ardent users of a crypto come together? And I ask that it's a bit loaded because I know that the whole point of Bitcoin is to not be bucketed anywhere, but I, I want to push that for a moment. Can you help explain to me how communities in crypto using Bitcoin's history as a base come together? Yeah, so we, I can chat briefly, at, you know, and I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself the sort of best Bitcoin historian, but I'm happy to kind of speak to what I know of or what I do know, I guess, about the history of Bitcoin and how it kind of evolved was it all started with a mailing list. And it all started with a group of, basically, it was the, the cypherpunk mailing list. And cypherpunks were just a group of cryptographers that uh, were just very into this movement or this idea that uh, cryptography should be available to everybody if, because of privacy reasons. And, uh, and, and you should always be able to, you know, hold a high degree of privacy, no matter what you're doing, whether it's online, uh, whether it's a physical realm. And so they were already kind of these, uh, it's a, you know, kind of hard to kind of say it, but, but they're, they're like this, the, you know, the hardest, the bleeding edge of, of fintechnophiles, you know, as far as cryptographers go. And so Satoshi kind of mails out his proposal to this list and hoping to find some volunteers to kind of help him hash out some of his idea. Then, you know, and then most of the discussion stuck around email, However, then somebody in the community created this forum called Bitcoin Talk. And some of the discussion basically moved to Bitcoin Talk. Even Satoshi himself posted many times on Bitcoin Talk. And then from Bitcoin Talk, I believe it started kind of spreading into Reddit and Twitter. And that's kind of how the community congregated around Bitcoin and can kind of exchange information around Bitcoin. Then you started seeing like some physical Bitcoin meetups here and there. Um, there were, um, you know, meetups started popping up in places like New York, Korea, um, and then, you know, and, and people started mining it. And so there was also, you know, there was all the social activity happening around Bitcoin. And there was also the other interesting thing was that you can make money from Bitcoin by mining, by basically downloading the software into your computer and basically having your computer contribute to the network. So there was a bunch of incentives that kind of fed into this building of the community. And that's kind of how the Bitcoin community came to be. Ethereum was a little bit different. And I don't have as much of an in-depth knowledge of how the Ethereum kind of stuff came together. I have a high-level understanding, but that's kind of how it came together around Bitcoin. Well, then let's stay with that because that's what you know. I will now turn to what you know the best, which is Ledin. Can you start by telling me what Ledin is and doesn't provide to the world? And then I do have that question, which I'd mentioned before about how to create community yourself around it. But let's start with what's Ledin all about? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Ledin essentially is a platform where people can get more out of their Bitcoin and, and digital assets. So we offer, you know, our, our thinking in many ways, a saying we like is the best rest of us have the smallest menu. So we like to do a few things, but we do them better than anyone else in, in our view. And so we let people earn interest with their Bitcoin. So we have a Bitcoin savings account and also with their USDC, so dollar stablecoin. Uh, our, our Bitcoin savings account, you know, just to give you a sense, pays 6.25% interest on, on your first half of Bitcoin. And our USDC savings account pays 9.5% interest on, on stablecoin, on the US dollar stablecoin. And 
um, the additional products we have is people, the, the, our flagship product and what people know us most for is our Bitcoin-backed loans. So these are people that have Bitcoin and do not want to sell their Bitcoin, but want access to financing to either, you know, uh, pay for school, buy a house, pay down their credit cards, uh, invest in a new business, uh, and they want to keep the upside of holding the Bitcoin. So what they do is they place their Bitcoin as collateral and we give them a dollar loan. And then once they are able to repay the loan, they can get their Bitcoin back. And then if the Bitcoin went up in value, it continues to be their Bitcoin. That never changed. And then we have another loan product that's B2X. That's basically the same loan product, but it, the proceeds are used to buy more Bitcoin. And uh, and you can trade in between your savings accounts. So you're, you're always earning interest, even if you want to move from Bitcoin into USDC, or if you're in USDC and waiting for the right time to buy Bitcoin, vice versa, you're always earning interest. And that's one of the things clients really like about the platform. And then the things we do differently is, you know, we're a centralized entity, so we're a Canadian entity. Uh, and, um, you know, we have an amazing team. Right now we're over 65 people. Uh, we were the first lender ever to do a proof of reserves attestation with certified public accountants. So every six months we have an accountant that comes into Latin, makes sure that basically totals all the assets that we've lent out to institutions and then totals all the assets that, that we have from clients and makes sure that we have more assets than liabilities. And every one of our clients basically gets a, an ID, uh, anonymized ID code that they can use to log into the accountant's website to make sure that the balance that we gave the accountant was in fact their balance at the time. And so we kind of crowdsource the liability side of the uh, of the equation so that all of our clients can basically see that we did indeed give the accountants the right balances. And you know the audits basically match to the Satoshi and to the cent. And that's something that we're really, really proud of. Okay, understood. So a couple thoughts from me. First off, I don't know a whole lot about using Bitcoin as collateral for things, but I do know one thing, and that's that those interest rates that you said are a lot higher than you would get at a typical bank with uh, regular fiat. But I will also say this, because this seems to take the structure of financial instruments that most people are aware of with regards to savings and loans and things like that, and applying them to a new and perhaps mostly unfamiliar type of currency for a lot of investors, including those that have been investing in different things for years and years and years, it might make them more comfortable, more familiar, more willing to dip their toes into this world. And that's great for you because more fans of this will arise, which means in this case that you might work towards a more financially free world. Here's my rub. And the question, which is like the most burning question I have in my mind here, which is Bitcoin's purpose as a financial instrument is to be a decentralized currency. And by the way, correct me on any of this because you're more knowledgeable than I am. Fans or investors or users of the crypto, as we've just laid out during this interview, have broad interests which quickly approach the breadth of all of humanity. It's impossible to nail them down into one particular corner, though they may have started in certain forums. Now the movement has grown to be truly global and massive. You now run a brand that you hope retains a specific cohort of users of Bitcoin. How do you marry the user's decentralized preference of the way they do finance with the need as a business to corral a centralized community of fans? That's a really good question. So while Bitcoin has a sort of decentralized ethos to it, a big saying within the crypto community is not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So basically they say that if you don't hold the keys to your Bitcoin, 
then they are not your Bitcoin. Essentially, if you if you have uh, if you have your Bitcoin at a custodial service, that they are not really your Bitcoin because somebody else has the private keys for it. And so that's just to show you and illustrate how emphatic the community is around this sort of sense of financial independence, not depending on anyone to, to process a transaction for you other than yourself, right? Now, there are some services that by the pure nature of how they, these services are provided, they need to have a, a, a central coordinator or, a cord, or an entity that kind of you know, manages the, the, the lifeline of the financial service. And in this case, that is true for both savings and loans, right? Like you can't generate interest by lending a Bitcoin if you don't give someone else the, you know, the, the ability to lend that Bitcoin out for a higher interest rate, right? Or to, or to do something with that Bitcoin, in, you know, in some cases. So savings and lending, and, and, so, and also if you want to put, you know, your Bitcoin as collateral for a particular finance, just to access financing, you cannot do that by holding the keys to the Bitcoin. Like no lender, uh, that means that the lender has absolutely no protection on the Bitcoin as collateral. And so what happens is, you know, what we try to do with Lenin is understanding that we have to be a custodial service to offer the services that we do. We try to structure those services in a format that is as transparent as Bitcoin and way better than the current options that people might have today. And, and I'll give you an example. This proof of reserves protocol that I just mentioned to you earlier with the accountants coming in, that is something that Lenin was the first company or the first lending company in the world ever to do that. And the reason we did that is because Bitcoiners have another big saying in their uh, in our community, which is don't trust, verify. And so it's not necessarily always about telling clients what you're doing. It's giving them the tools to validate that what you're saying you're doing is in fact what you are doing. So basically prove that you're doing what you said you would. And by doing these things and by being very, very transparent and, and remaining sort of focused and keeping our simplicity into, into the core assets that we think we can do better than anyone else, that has helped us connect with the Bitcoin community. And, and we've, we, you know, we've kind of crafted that messaging to let them know that it's not that we're holding the Bitcoin because we feel like it, it's because it's necessary for us to carry out the activities that we do to make these services happen. And so under that premise, uh, they've been very receptive to the way we kind of operate. Thank you for that explanation, just because I was having a really hard time putting those two things together. And my guess is that there will always be a line to walk here when dealing with preferences versus realities versus perceptions versus, I guess, inherent, I don't want to say skepticism, but perhaps pursuit of a verifiable truth, especially when it comes to things like lending. So that's very helpful. Now I want to speak to uh, the other key word of our show, which is the future. What do you predict the financial services world, the fintech world? Now this question is going to be huge, so just bear with me for a second. Where do you think that FIs will have to go, maybe not just in the next year, but in the next few years, to attract people who trust you above and beyond what they do today. Essentially, what I'm asking is, how will brands continue to make their mark such that consumers choose them over themselves, if that makes sense, over just managing their own finances? 
I think that is a really great question and a question that many people are exploring right now. Uh, and just to basically make sure that their brand is going to remain relevant in this sort of, you know, in this changing times. My personal view is that um, people aren't watching ads anymore. Everything has a skip function. Everybody has blinders on when you have banners. So my view is that you know, most companies or successful companies are, are basically going to have to have a sort of media arm uh, in-house or work very closely with a, with a particular media arm to produce engaging content that's relevant to their consumers. And I think that's not necessarily a revolutionary new idea. You know, you, you've seen this in the likes of, you know, a memorable one is Red Bull, who, you know, a lot of people know for their extreme sports and, and videos, but it, it's an energy drink, you know? And so that, that's an example of a brand that uses content to just find a way to stay relevant. And yeah, and another one that I can think of actually was, is Nike. So Nike had these like amazing uh, commercials around every World Cup. And, you know, it had like the top players in the world just playing around and it was super engaging uh, and fun to watch. And so I think that'll become even more true in the years to come as people have more and more options to basically not watch ads. And also people connect better with organic content. So I see that as a trend that is likely going to continue. And I think that's, that's where you're going to gain fans because if people just want to use your product, they'll be clients. But for people to be, be fans, they have to really be engaged with your mission, with, with where you're going, with, with your values. And you have to communicate those often so that you can stay relevant, I think. I agree. And I'm excited to see how that world proliferates. It wasn't too long ago that stock trading at least in the US, became appified. I mean, I don't know how, maybe five, six, seven years ago. And there was a craze. And, you know, I don't know how much trust maybe there was, maybe complete trust, but there was ardent fandom. This wave will come to crypto in a, I would say, more mainstream way, not to say that it isn't mainstream globally, but to the mainstream investor. And I look forward to seeing uh, you lead the charge. So for teaching me a little bit more about it here, I really appreciate it, Mauricio. Thank you for uh, showing me the future a little bit, and uh, best of luck to you. Oh, thanks a lot, man. You're way too kind, and, and I, you know, we're happy to have everyone along for the ride. It's an amazing time to be in. Thanks again to Mauricio Di Bartolomeo for joining us. Crypto is undoubtedly a world mover, and I appreciate you helping us understand that world a little better. And thanks to you, the listener, for exploring the future of fandom with us. I'd encourage you to stay connected, so be sure to subscribe to The Future of Fandom wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can also find all of our content at livelike.com. And across socials, we're also on LinkedIn at LiveLike and Twitter at LiveLikeInc. I look forward to predicting the future again with you soon. Until then, I'm Adam Connor saying so long and thanks for being a fan.